Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Susan Zarenda, author of Bells for Eli, a compelling coming-of-age story where culture, family, friends, bullies, and lovers propel two young people to unite to guard each other in small-town Green Branch, South Carolina, where love, hope, and connectedness ultimately triumph. Bells for Eli is a lyrical and tender exploration of the relationship between cousins drawn together through tragedy and a love forbidden by social constraints and a family whose secrets must stay hidden. Jill McCorkle, author of Life After Life, says Susan Zarenda's finely detailed debut novel paints a vivid portrait of Adeline Green, who is growing up in the 70s and maneuvering class differences, peer pressure, and first love. The sexual confines of her southern town, as well as taboo family secrets from the past, bring her face-to-face with life-changing decisions and losses in ways both moving and profound. And Cassandra King Conroy, award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of five novels and the memoir, Tell Me a Story, My Life with Pat Conroy, says of the book, A stunning debut. Bells for Eli establishes Susan Zarenda as one of the most exciting new voices in Southern fiction. In this tender, beautifully rendered novel, The powerful connection between cousins Delia and Eli takes them on a journey fraught with longing, desire, and heartbreak. Through loss, Delia comes to understand that the bonds of love can never truly be broken. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. 
Yeah, and that's 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 great praise there. We're going to talk a little bit more about the praise in a minute. But first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I'm happy for it to be out, and it, it debuted along with the pandemic. But I am grateful for all of the the good praise it's gotten. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, I did I did want to ask you um, a little bit about connecting with readers during a pandemic. I know that's been challenging. But talk about a little bit about some of those challenges, but also what you've enjoyed about the process, notwithstanding those challenges. Um, The book came out on March 2nd, and um, I was on tour for about a week and a half before it shut down from live events. And so we went into plan B, and I have learned a lot about doing events virtually, online, uh, to try to reach out to readers. And it's, it's been a strange time, but it it's it's strange for all authors, not to mention everybody else in the world. But it's it's just it's just been different, you know. I, if I had been out live, I, I think you know, reaching people probably uh, would have sold more books than we have. But I have had the opportunity to get a, a lot of really nice reviews, um, both online and in print. And perhaps some of those might not have happened had I been on the road all the time. Yeah, I like that uh, positive outlook, you know, one door shuts, another opens kind of thing. Plus, think of all the things you've learned how to use now technologically, Zoom and now Squadcast. And, That's right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> these are things that they're going to come in handy later. And, uh, you know, when you get back to, to to the world where we can actually be in community with one another. Uh, but let me just, you're also a book publicist, right? So Correct. So how, how have it, has it been also for you, uh, your clients? You're trying to hold their hands through this process as well. Right. I um, really work as a media person for Kathy Bennett at Magic Time Literary Publicity. So when she sets up events for authors, then I come behind and do a, a good bit of media outreach. And of course, we haven't had any live tours. So I haven't been doing much media outreach. Um, she's set up some virtual events for authors, but in, in general, we don't do, you know, as much media for that. It's it's more self-done on social media. So that has given me more time to work um, on marketing Bells for Eli. So as you say, it's a kind of a trade-off. But we are starting now to set up some events, live events for authors um, for the spring. And we all have our fingers crossed for a vaccine. Absolutely. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the buzzwords from some of the praise. I read in the opening some some kind words uh, from Jill McCorkle and Cassandra King Conroy about the novel. And uh, but also you've got others as well that, uh, you know, Ann Hyde talks about uh, it reminds readers of Pat Conroy's rich storytelling, mentions how the book captures the heart. She talked about uh, Mary Alice Monroe talks about the genuine emotion and the atmosphere. Um, and uh, then you have other words. Um, you know, Christina McMorris talks about uh, the depth of characters and uh, George Singleton, again, human heart and how the narrator knows the human soul. And these buzzwords were interesting to me. Um, that is, they buzzed in my head because I was thinking after I'd read the book uh, about some of them. And I'm just curious about uh, how how your own emotions drove sort of the writing of this book, because it is filled with a lot of emotions from the characters that are involved here. 
Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, and I, I hope I can answer it. Early on, I thought about uh, having the point of view of the book be from third person. And I tried that for a little while from Delia's point of view. And then I just didn't feel close enough to her. And I went back and I made it first person. And in doing so, um, I'm not sure Delia became a part of me or I became a part of Delia. And I just, she lived almost literally inside my head and, and as did Eli when you know, the relationship between them. And it it was a curiosity to me, really. I'd be sitting at night writing and they would start into a scene and things would begin to happen. And I would just let myself go and just try to feel what they felt. The hardest character for me to feel was Eli's father, Gene, um, whom Delia calls Uncle Gene, because he he's just a difficult man to like. He's alcoholic. He is uh, indirectly at least responsible for his son's accident. He has a pretty skewed sense of what it takes to be a man, and he wants so desperately for his compromised son to be a man. Um, it was it was a struggle for me to understand uh, Gene Winfield because I didn't like him very much. <laughs> and, but then I, I didn't, he's not a villain. He's a human being and, and nobody is all good or all bad. And it really, I, I worked it out by actually writing a scene in which uncle Gene uh, defends his son, comes onto the playground when the boys are bullying him and defends his son and not in a good way. He's drunk. He's got an ax handle but all of a sudden, in writing that scene, I could feel his desperation and I could feel his guilt, and he became human to me. Yeah, let's talk about that a minute, a little bit about the inciting incident and, and, and the main characters here. This, uh, the year is 1959. Eli, who you mentioned earlier, Eli Winfield, he's three years old. He has a horrible accident that leaves him permanently scarred. Um, uh, let's talk about that accident, and then let's talk about Delia a second. But but uh, set the scene for us um, and what happens that uh, causes, you know, the uncle character you just described to have this guilt that he had. Okay. When uh, on Eli's third birthday, his father um, has poured Red Devil Lie into a Coca-Cola bottle. It has properties like helium, and he has put the balloons over the neck of the bottle to inflate them for the birthday party, left the bottle on the back steps. Eli, it's a Coca-Cola bottle. He picks it up and he drinks from it. And uh, he survives, obviously, but his, his life is, is greatly compromised um, physically very much when he's little. It's, it's, you know, it's 1959 and in the early 60s, he has a, a metal tracheotomy in his throat. He has a strange string that runs through his nose that's to pull a dilator up and down through his esophagus. And he has a hole in his stomach through which he's fed, which gives him an unpleasant smell um, when he's a child. So he's bullied and he's tormented by his peers. And Delia, his first cousin, who lives across the street, becomes really his only friend and his defender. 
But when Eli is about 12, the outer um, appearance is normal. The trach's gone, the tubes are gone, and he, he grows into quite a charismatic and uh, likable, handsome young man. But he is still very much scarred emotionally and physically on the inside. And so the dynamics change um, to, from a, a child who was bullied to a, a young man who doesn't want to go back there. So when you talk about Uncle Gene, you're talking about uh, Uncle to Delia, but uh, but he's also Eli's father, and he's right. set this up, so he's got the guilt. How did that what if come to you? I mean, where were you when this idea came to you? Okay. <laughs> that's a common question that's asked to me. <laughs> this This book, though, probably it's 85% imagined. But the initial scene in which Eli swallows the lie is actually inspired by something that happened to a first cousin of mine who actually, his family moved to Charlotte uh, when he was maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years old, maybe a little younger. But the same thing happened. His father was blowing up balloons for my cousin Danny's birthday party and Danny drank from the bottle. At that time, they were living in Plainfield, New Jersey. So, I mean, obviously, I wasn't anywhere near the incident, nor would I have been old enough. Um, he, he was only two in, in real life uh, when it happened. Would I have been old enough to remember it? And so it's really only secondhand uh, that I knew about it as I, you know, grew old enough to know about it. And I didn't grow up with Danny either, though, as I mentioned, his family did move to Charlotte and I grew up in Lancaster, South Carolina, which is not but an hour away from Charlotte. And so I would see him, you know, from time to time. And when we were teenagers, we became good friends. He dated a friend of mine for about a year and he would on occasion um, set me up with a friend of his in Charlotte. But that that real life incident is what um, propelled the novel. Interesting. And of course you took it farther from there because there's this relationship that develops between Eli and Delia. So on Charlotte's podcast, we like to uh, have the authors read their work, uh, you know, giving voice to their written words. And uh, we got a little read here from that you're going to do from the start of the book. And it's in the prologue. I'd like you to set this up and, um, Tell us, set the scene for us, and then you're going to read kind of from the, uh, toward the end of the prologue uh, for the reading here. Okay. The prologue actually begins in 1978. Delia is a young woman. She's 21 years old, and she is in, has, has taken a long walk on a very hot August day in her hometown of Green Branch, South Carolina. She is, um, obviously from the beginning, not feeling good. Something has got her down. She decides to walk into the graveyard uh, because it's cooler in there and it's shady. And this is toward the the end of the uh, prologue after she has run upon um, some older ladies who are in there on a a DAR tour of the graveyard of of, uh, some perhaps Civil War or even Revolutionary War graves. And we don't know what um, is causing Delia to be sort of flatlined or grieving, if you will. Uh, 
And that's where I'll start. And then when the prologue ends, the, the, the real story begins in 1959 with Eli's accident. I nodded and watched her retreat toward the waiting group. And the her is Miss Inez Wilson, who's the town historian who's been giving the tour. I lay back and looked up at a day full of August sky. Even with some mottled shade from an oak tree nearby, the starchy grass beneath my arms felt hot enough to kindle stones. The sun blazed white, and I squinted against its brilliance. My arm across my face to shield the heat, I thought about school, about not graduating magna cum laude as I was supposed to back in the spring. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I simply couldn't do it. I was fully aware of my parents' gift in paying for four years of education. Still am. I must have dozed, for the sound of the noon bells from the clock tower jolted me, though it shouldn't have. I heard them every day. Green Branch is famous for its clock, supposedly the oldest working public clock in the country, erected in the center square in 1832, the year the town was named. The clock has a set of eight bells in its tower that ring the Cambridge chimes every hour, except on the stroke of noon, when the chimes peal for five full minutes. Eli learned on a peal of eight bells, 40,320 changes are possible. He was mathematical like that. I roused myself from the grassy spot where I lay beside Lauderdale Graves. I wiped the back of my dusty wrist across my wet forehead and then onto my shorts, creating a gray smear. I stood reluctantly and looked toward the street. I considered the walk back to Congress Street, to our house at the inn, the last one to be built, a Dutch colonial constructed of blue granite in the 1940s from the quarry outside of town. It took a century to create the menagerie of houses on our block. Gothic cottages, imposing mansard Victorians, bungalows, Queen Anne gingerbreads, and lots of early American revival. Eli's house, across the road from ours but farther back off the street, is the oldest and grandest, a late Victorian ennobled by a turret and surrounded by an ornate wrought iron fence, a wedding gift from Mary Margaret Lauderdale for her daughter and son-in-law, and that's Eli's parents. Its crowning glory is a triangular window of stained glass set in a large front gable, a window that both colored and obscured the childhood paradise within, the attic junk room where Eli and I contemplated the mysteries of our world. So Susan, thanks uh, for that reading. One of the things that uh, came out in the reading were the noon bells from the clock tower, the supposedly oldest working public clock in the country. And then you make uh, reference to how Eli could tell with the peal of eight bells that there were 40,320 changes that are possible. And so that gets sort of to the title of the book and, and sort of the cover of the book, uh, Bells for Eli. There are a lot of bells going off in this book from time to time. Talk about that imagery a little bit and why you thought that was important, uh, both for the for the book and uh, how that made it to the cover with the title. Eli is a musician. He plays piano, but what he loves more than anything is percussion. And he loves to play the bells. He's, in fact, really obsessed with bells. And when he's uh, 
teenager, even really when he's still uh, pre-adolescent, he becomes a risk taker. It's one of the ways he can escape uh, those internal feelings from his early childhood. And and one thing he loves to do is, is climb a tower. There's an old bell tower out behind his grandmother, uh, Mary Margaret Lauderdale's home, antebellum home. And there is the town clock as well. And, and both of those draw him. And at different times in the book, he will climb uh, both towers and, and both will become fraught with problems when he does so. So that's sort of the literal kind of understanding of Bells in the book. But I hope that Bells has a, a number of symbolic ramifications as, as well. For one thing in the title, bells are something we ring to give a tribute to someone. And in some ways, I think of this book as Delia's tribute to her cousin Eli, whom she loves so much. And bells are, they're spiritual too. And um, there, there's a lot of uh, sort of spirituality, even a little bit of mysticism, uh, kind of otherworldliness that goes on in the book. And it's said that bells are kind of the gateway between heaven and earth. So I, I hope that folks who read the book will discover a, a lot of sort of different ramifications of bells. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, description. And while I'm looking at the cover and we're talking about it, uh, uh, listeners uh, can't see it now, but they can look in the show notes, uh, charlotterspodcast.com. They'll see it, see it on your website where we have links to it. But uh, uh, this sort of gets into a discussion maybe about the setting because what I'm looking at, uh, you know, is a big title on the front, but also I see some flowers with some colors and it looks like an old Southern house with a white picket fence. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in this little small town, this fictional town in, so in small town, South Carolina in the sixties and seventies, which, you know, could be wholesome and idyllic, but basically under the surface of any small towns or idyllic settings are going to be, you know, the secrets and the cruelty. And as you say, the bullying, what do you think of the uh, cover? Did you, did you like it? I, I do. I like it very much. It is um, an interpretation, I believe, of the setting of Magnolia Manor in the book, which is Eli's aristocratic grandmother's home, um, Mary Margaret Lauderdale's home. And e Eli is from landed aristocracy his, on his mother's side. His father, Gene, of course, who is Delia's blood uncle, uh, is from a family that didn't fare so well after the Civil War. Uh, they are, in fact, Delia's parents are first-generation college. Um, his, her mother and Jean are brother and sister, and Delia's family has actually worked in the cotton mill for generations. And so there, there is a, a, that sort of a, con it's not a huge conflict in the book, but there's a kind of a mild conflict um, between classes, but it's there is no cultural conflict between Delia and Eli, and that's that's one of the things you know that that emphasizes their connection to each other. There's really nothing that bars their their closeness to each other, um, and and that class sort of upbringing sort of difference. Of course, Delia's parents have gone to college, but, the, but when we look at the background of their generations, it, it makes no difference to Delia and Eli. 
Did you grow up in a small town? I did. I grew up in the small town of Lancaster, South Carolina. Um, I wasn't all that consciously aware of bits and pieces of Lancaster in the setting, but folks from my hometown who've read it uh, have picked up on some things. And I did enjoy from time to time using some names, uh, principal of the school and all. I mean, these people are are gone now. So I, I just had a good time when a name like that would pop in my head. I'd go, why not? I believe I'll use that. So there are bits and pieces probably of my hometown. And the town clock that we've already talked about in the book is actually based on the town clock in Winsboro, South Carolina, which is about 30 miles from Lancaster. And it is said to be the oldest working clock in the country. Well, it is the prerogative of a writer to sneak in some of those names that, they, uh, that, that they're that they tied to from their past and also to let their subconscious go to work on them when it comes That's right. to, to, <laughs> to settings. Um, and, uh, you know, you, like all good novels, you, you, you drop in some surprises. You have a secret that's kind of revealed at the end. Um, you've got some good imagery, um, you know, with the, with the poison going down. I think Delia talks about it uh, as young Delia. Uh, she talks about how it might have been like fire that would turn things black. I mean, her young mind at the time, that's all she could see, like, uh, you know, a poison that would, would kill a weed. And um, But then this is story. I, I think I do like the fact you did first person for Delia because while Eli has suffered this external, external event, she's got a lot of internal conflict uh, in her life, you know, trying to be Eli's protector, maybe wanting to be, you know, his lover, maybe struggling with what he's going through, but she has to do it internally a lot. And the best way to see that is by being close to her in her head. Was that some of your thinking? Yes, it was. I, I wanted, I wanted to be inside Delia's head and I have, and, and she is the protagonist. Um, she's the, you know, the protagonist uh, comes to see life, the world in a somewhat different way. And I've had people ask me why I didn't tell it from Eli's point of view. Well, Eli wants to forget. He wants to forget what happened in his childhood to him, both uh, physically and emotionally. And so he doesn't go there. In fact, as a teenager, he tries everything he can to escape. The, The recklessness I mentioned before, he does fall off the rails on drugs. It's the counterculture encroaching. You mentioned the small town. In the 60s, yes, it was still a very insular place. But it's only a supposed innocence because we're all human beings and there are demons and skeletons beneath the surface. And plus there is the conflict of the counterculture coming in that he embraces. But I didn't tell the story from his point of view. and in large part because he doesn't go back there and Delia can go back there. Yeah. And there's a part in the book where you say, uh, Delia is reflecting and she says, you know, if not for this accident, we might've been familiar cousins, friends, close, no doubt, living across the street, but his, but his accident changed the ordinary relationship we had as children. Um, and therein grew the love, you know, between them. Um, did you know that when you started writing the book that it would develop that way? I did not. I did not. I set out, you know, to write a book in in which 
an accident changes the trajectory of a young boy's life and the lives around him. And I knew that they would be very extraordinarily close in childhood because she's his only friend um, and, and defends him the best she can. But because of that close relationship, when they got to be adolescents and therefore sexual beings, what did they do with that? Those feelings have been building their entire lives. And I, I really didn't think consciously about it. I was simply moving through the happenings in their world. And one one night <laughs> for them and for me, I was sitting at the computer writing and Eli had taken Delia to a, a dance, a rather fancy dance in Columbia uh, to try to help her get over this boyfriend she'd had um, whom he sees as a user and a player. In, in this case, it kind of takes one to know one because he's such a playboy himself when he's a teenager. But he's taken Delia to try. He doesn't want her to go back with Rad. And so she's had this glorious evening. And on the way home, he asked them if he asked her if she wants to go parking. Well, his reason for doing so is he wants to reveal an indiscretion to her between him and a girl to try to deter Delia from ever getting in that sort of a fix. But while they're parked and he's pretty much smashed from being at the dance, they he puts in his eight track tape of Stairway to Heaven and it's dark and they're there. And I just let it, I just let them go with it. I, I just wrote and I just kind of watched it happen that they revealed their intimate feelings toward one another. And when I looked at it the next day, I thought, well, okay, you know what? It was inevitable. And, and I, it was inevitable that they were going to have those feelings. And therefore, it was my responsibility to let them have them. And to not do so wouldn't have been true to the characters. And then you're thinking the ladies in the church choir in the small town aren't going to like this very much because it's first cousins. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, that's a, it's a big conflict, a tremendous conflict in the book. But they do know and they they do know that that relationship is taboo and that they and, and that's part of the conflict for them is is how they learn to to handle that. All right. Just a couple of questions here about your writing life as it relates to this. You taught to. Uh, Literature, composition, creative writing to thousands of high school and college students for 33 years. And and then you turned your attention to to this novel, which, you know, was on your heart. You wanted to write. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, why didn't you start writing sooner, writing alongside all your teaching? <laughs> <laughs> I did write. I wrote a lot of short fiction right, over the right, years and right. uh, published a good many short stories and right. won, won some awards along the way. But I, I don't know, you know, there are some people who are superhuman and they can write while they're in the carpool line waiting for children to come out. I can do that with a short piece, sort right. of. But I, I am one of those people who needs long blocks of time. When I sit down to write, working on Bells for Eli or on the novel I'm working on now, I'll sit for four and five hours at the time and I, I, I get into a, a place 
And I just keep going as long as my 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 body and my mind want to keep want to keep going. But it was just I, I taught, you know, I taught English. You, you grade a lot of essays when you teach English. I raised two daughters. I went through a not very uh, happy divorce, uh, took care of aging parents. And I just I just couldn't do them both. But once I retired from teaching full time and went to work part time as a book publicist, I was thrown into the world of authors. And I, I realized it was now or never. Yeah, that's that's great. And and I love the fact that you're jumping in. And I'm, I'm also curious a little bit about uh, your process and your discipline for doing this. Um, you know, do you sit down and write every day? Are you a more of a binge writer? Do you write in chunks? Uh, how do you go about it? And how did you go about it for this book? Um, for Bells for Eli, I did not have a practice of trying to write every day. I probably wrote four nights out of the week, most most weeks. And I don't recommend my writing regimen to anyone <laughs> because you're supposed to get up early in the morning, make a pot of coffee and drink coffee and, and write. And I just I can't do that. The, the, the things around me in the day distract me. Uh, maybe they make me procrastinate. I see, oh, golly, I haven't unloaded the dishwasher. Or, oh, goodness, oh, I haven't done that media pitch for that author I need to do. Um, Whatever it is. But when night comes, it's dark. For me, the distractions go away. The inner critic kind of goes to sleep. My inner critic won't is just on high alert during the day. And it's just night is better for me. Uh, sometimes my husband, you know, will say as I'm I'm trying to to write a, a second novel right now, he'll say, "Are you staying up till midnight, or you think it'll be about 3 a.m.?" and and I'll say, "I don't know." So just just go on to bed. Don't worry about it. I'll get there when I get there. No, well, you use the words, you know, um, I'm supposed to, and I think I've interviewed now close to 200 authors on the podcast, and everybody has a little bit different way of coming at this thing called writing. And one of the authors told me recently interviewed that it's really about self-diagnosing. You, you can't really listen to what other people tell you about when you're supposed to write because you make a good point. Uh, if the nighttime is the better time for you to write, that's when you write. You know, I've had a couple of people on the show like you who've said they need to get all the gnats and mosquitoes out of the way first. They need to take mm-hmm. care of their email. They need to take care of all their chores and then they can sit down and relax. And I love how you said your inner critic goes to sleep early. Maybe that's a good thing. If, my, if I let my critic go to sleep early at about nine, I stay up late. <laughs> I, I did the same thing you did. I wrote late at night as a lawyer and I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this now that I'm podcasting in this? And I have found that later in the evenings, uh, it's it's nice for me. Yes, so. it is. I, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, are fatigued late in the day and I'm, I'm more fatigued in the middle of the afternoon. I, I kind of get a second wind at night. If, if I've had enough sleep the night before, I get a second wind and I, I, I get a, I just, that's when my inspiration usually comes. Well, well that's uh, one, one final question here. Um, what would you tell, because you've had a lot of experience here teaching and writing short pieces and now long pieces, but what would you tell your younger writing self something valuable uh, that had you known it um, might have helped you write this 
novel sooner or do something different uh, that might have helped your younger writer now that you've had this experience, not only of the short writing, but the novel as well? Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about whether when I was a young woman, instead of getting a master's in English, I should have gotten an MFA. And perhaps that, you know, would have given me more experience early on. And my MFA turns out to have been decades of teaching English and literature and therefore reading and reading and reading and really almost absorbing um, just unconsciously how words go together and how they create a moment that you want to create a feeling, an understanding about human nature. I would like to have started writing uh, novels probably earlier in my life, but I, I don't really, but then again, I don't really have regrets. I, I, I think I have gained as a writer through all my years of teaching and my experience as a human being. I think I see more deeply now. I think I feel more deeply now. And I'm just happy to be where I am uh, and, and go forward from here and hope I have, oh, I don't know, a few more good years in me. <laughs> no, no. Well, the book is uh, wonderfully written. It's a, it's a great story. And uh, so I wouldn't have any second thoughts, any regrets, because it, it all sort of comes together. And like you, I'm, I'm after I decided to, to turn from law practice to author to podcaster, I actually toyed with the idea of an MFA, but my MFA is interviewing wonderful authors like you. So I've had now oh, about two, right. 200, 200 interviews now. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of free advice from folks like. Well, that's right. And that, <laughs> and that's true. I mean, and that's true too. And I don't mean to say I, I did. Uh, I have been to many wonderful writing workshops and I took a graduate, one of my graduate courses when I was getting my master's was in creative writing uh, with Rosa Shand. She's in her 80s now and her, her memory fails her now, but she was a tremendous um, supporter. And, and we became really good friends after that class. And she would always, she was so kind and, and would always give me feedback. And I think of, of Rosa as being one of the main people in my life, and I, I have acknowledged her in the book, who helped me find that path. I had, like I said, I had written short fiction, but I got better. Um, and I think Rosa did a lot in, in, in that class and, and later in her guidance with me. You know, maybe she was my personal MFA. There you go. All right, well, listeners, uh... We're we're gonna do something special now. Um, you know, we've got this uh, Patreon channel. Uh, Susan and I are gonna jump over now and record an episode uh, called "Creating Genuine Emotion and Character." She's she's taught this before. We're gonna have a conversation about it. Uh, if you'd like to hear more about how we do that, uh, you know, check out our Patreon page. You can find it at uh, charlotteriverspodcast.com. On our Patreon page, you can also go directly to Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash charlotte readers podcast and so yeah join us there uh this will come out right after uh, this this free podcast and uh you can help us help authors give voice to the written words if you come listen not only that episode but there's more than 30 others 
out there on the channel already. So check it out. Um, Susan, thanks so much for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Landis, thank you so, so much for interviewing me. This has just been a delight. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.